Chapter 27 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector Macpherson. Chapter 27 How to Know the Stars. Perhaps no one can really appreciate the romance of astronomy without being familiar with the brighter stars and the principal constellations. As Mr. E. W. Maunder puts it, quote, How great an interest is given to any object by the fact that we know its name. Take some town children out into the country and set them to gather wild flowers. How instantly they ask their names. End quote. It is the same in the case of the stars. When we look at the heavens on a clear night and behold apparently countless points of light, we are lost and overwhelmed with the number of the stars and the complexity of their distribution. One star seems much like another, and we look away from the sky again with neither interest nor curiosity. But, if we are told that such and such a star is Aldebaran, and such and such is Sirius, our interest is aroused, and we naturally desire to trace out the star groups in the heavens and to identify the stars for ourselves. But, asks the would-be astronomer, how is it possible for me to learn the star names and trace the constellations without being taught? Carlyle lamented in his old age, quote, Why did not somebody teach me the constellations and make me at home in the starry heavens? End quote. But in reality no one requires to be taught the constellations. Everyone can best learn them for himself. At the outset, it is true, the task seems impossible of attainment, and some of the hints given in astronomical books only make the task seem more gigantic. When we are told to draw imaginary lines through such and such stars of the plough, and these will lead us to such and such stars in Leo, and will form triangles and quadrilaterals with such and such stars in Cepheus, we feel baffled with the magnitude of the task, and many would-be astronomers fall back in despair and become stargazers, pure and simple. Now, this geometrical method, as we might call it, is all very well after we have acquired a knowledge of the chief constellations. It will then aid us in identifying the various stars of these constellations. But it is open to very serious objections when we're studying the heavens for the first time. Instead of this method, there's another, which, for want of a better term, we may call the pictorial method. The beginner should first possess himself of a revolving planisphere, which shows the heavens at the various seasons of the year, and which is of a convenient size to be taken out of doors. He should then decide which part of the heavens he wishes to consider, and having selected, say, the southern aspect, he should adjust the planisphere to the day and hour, and examine it with the aid of a lantern. He will be surprised to find that he can trace without difficulty in the heavens the forms which he sees on the planisphere, and the names of which he learns. He sees, for instance, on the planisphere a particular group in the form of a cross, high up, and named Cygnus. When he turns his gaze to the heavens, there he can trace this form without difficulty. Where a few minutes ago he could only see an irregular mass of stars, he now sees a star group with a distinct form and its own individuality. Similarly, the observer will pick up other groups in the same manner, no attempt should be made to force the recollection of the groups, but the observer should return night after night to the same part of the heavens. He will be surprised to find that he is beginning to know the constellations without any effort. The configurations are becoming familiar to him, and after a few nights' comparison, 
of the heavens and the planisphere, he will be able to identify Cygnus, Aquila, etc., without the aid of the planisphere. In this manner, the observer may, in the course of a few months, learn all the various constellations. The names, too, of the brightest stars are marked in the planisphere, and he will thus unconsciously learn them also. For instance, he will see that one of the stars in Lyra is very bright. Looking at the planisphere, he will see that it is thereon designated by a special name, Vega, and thus a knowledge of the brighter stars individually is easy. Many are content with the knowledge of the constellations and bright stars, but it is well to be familiar with most of the stars of the second magnitude as well, and also some stars of the fainter magnitudes. For this purpose, of course, the planisphere is of no use. The observer should consult some star maps, or atlas of the stars, but he should be particularly careful in his choice of star maps. By all means, let him avoid those on which are represented what are known as the constellation figures. In such maps we find the plough represented by the figure of a bear, dotted with stars, Cygnus by a star-spangled swan, Orion by a hunter marked with stars. The stars are all inserted and named, but they are lost and confused through the introduction of the constellation figures. These figures are very interesting to the antiquarian and to the astronomer who studies closely the beginning of the science, but they are utterly out of place on such star maps. They existed and exist only in the imaginations of men and have no counterpart in the heavens. Whatever maps the would-be astronomer uses, he should use maps on which only the actual stars are marked. Various excellent maps could be mentioned. In A Handbook and Atlas of Astronomy by Mr. William Peck, astronomer to the city of Edinburgh, there is a good series of charts respecting regions in the heavens which should be of much use to the observer. If the observer, however, wishes to study not regions but individual constellations, he should at once possess himself of Mr. J. E. Gore's excellent guide entitled Star Groups. This latter method of learning the individual stars is really the best. Once the form of the constellation is mastered with the aid of the planisphere, the observer is familiar with the constellation's form and can study each star group individually. At this stage of his knowledge, he will find Mr. Gore's book of the utmost value. The constellations are represented on separate maps, and there are no constellation figures nor even any degrees of measurement. The stars are shown in white on a black background, and with the aid of this book and a lantern, the observer will not only have mastered the constellations, but will have gained sufficient knowledge of the heavens to enable him to begin astronomical observation on his own account. Nothing has been said here of the identification of the planets, and nothing need be said. The student will find no difficulty in recognizing the planets. He will soon learn to recognize the dull yellow glare of Saturn, the soft golden glow of Venus, the steady shining of Jupiter, the ruddy beams of Mars. He may even succeed in catching a glimpse of the elusive wanderer, Mercury, the sparkling one, on some evening or morning when the horizon is clear and the planet well placed for observation. As mentioned in a previous chapter, with the changes of the seasons, new star groups appear, old star groups disappear. In the south we behold the stately procession of the stars nightly across the skies, Leo, Virgo, Gemini in spring, Bootes, Scorpio, Hercules in summer, Cygnus, Aquila, Catus in autumn, Orion, Taurus, Canis Major, Perseus in winter. 
while the plow and the Cassiopeia and the other northern stars surrounding the pole star circle slowly round as the months go by. As the seasons advance, the reappearance of a familiar constellation lends a new charm and interest to the evening walk. As Mr. Maunder has well said, the work of learning the stars has a charm of its own. Quote, the silent watchers from heaven soon become each a familiar friend, and to any imaginative mind the sense that he's treading the same path as that traversed by the first students of nature will have a strange charm. End quote. Once the observer has learned the constellations, he's able to commence systematic observation on his own account. Even with the unaided eye, he may accomplish work which will at least afford him pleasure if it does not add to the sum of knowledge. With a field glass, we may make many interesting observations, while quite a number of celestial spectacles are open to the observer, possessing a telescope of two inches aperture. In the following list, an account is given of the chief objects of interest in the chief constellations in alphabetical order. Andromeda The most interesting object in this constellation is the Great Nebula. It may be glimpsed with the unaided eye and is easily seen with the field glass. In a two-inch telescope, it is a very fine spectacle. The chief stars are Alpha, Beta, and Gamma of the second magnitude, and Delta of the third. Aquarius one of the zodiacal constellations and inconspicuous, its chief stars are Alpha and Beta of the third magnitude, Delta and Zeta between the third and fourth. Aquila, a very striking group, well seen in summer and autumn, the chief stars are Alpha, Altair of the first magnitude, and Beta and Gamma of the third. The three are on a line. The star Eta is a short period, variable with a period of seven days. It is easily followed with the unaided eye. The galaxy is very brilliant in this constellation. Aries, a small compact constellation. The brightest stars are Alpha and Beta of second and third magnitude respectively. Aries is the first of the zodiacal constellations. Origa, one of the most notable of the constellations and a good group for binocular observation. The brightest stars are Alpha, the brilliant Capella, of the first magnitude, and beta of the second. Bootes, a straggling constellation which Mr. Maunder believes to resemble the much more striking group of Orion. The brightest star is Arcturus, or Alpha Bootes, of the first magnitude. Delta shows in the field glass as a double star. Cancer. This is the smallest and most inconspicuous of all the zodiacal constellations, the only striking feature of the group is the cluster known as Praesepi, or the beehive. It is visible to the unaided eye as a nebulous object, but the least optical aid shows it to be a group of stars. Canes Venatici. This is a very small constellation containing only one conspicuous star, Alpha, known otherwise as Cor Caroli. Canes Maior. This group of stars lies too low down to be seen to full advantage in this country. Nevertheless, it is a very fine celestial spectacle. Alpha, or Sirius, is the brightest star in the sky. It forms with Betelgeuse in Orion and Procyon in Canis Minor, an equilateral triangle. Although the study and identification of the stars on the principles of lines and triangles is generally speaking to be avoided, this is a figure so regular, so massive, that no one can mistake it, and it is useful to remember the names of the three stars which form it. 
The brilliance of the three and the dearth of brightness within the figure make it a majestic feature of the heavens. The following ancient rhyme quoted by Admiral Smythe should assist the beginner to remembering these stars. Quote, Let Procyon join to Betelguth and pass a line afar to reach the point where Sirius glows, the most conspicuous star. Then will the eye delighted view a figure fine and vast. Its span is equilateral, triangular, its cast. End quote. Canis Minor, a very limited group, its brightest star is Procyon of the first magnitude. Capricornus, this constellation is a good field for the binocular. Alpha of the third magnitude is a visual double star and is well seen with the binocular. It is not a true double star as the two stars are traveling in different directions and merely appear to be connected because they happen to lie in the same line of vision. Cassiopeia. No one can fail to recognize this constellation shaped like the letter W, which is on the opposite side of the pole star from the plow. It is a good binocular field. The region round the star Gamma is a particularly interesting one. The star Alpha is slightly variable in light. Cepheus, a less conspicuous group than the former. Viewed with the binocular, however, there are some fine star fields. A notable triangle is formed by the stars Delta, Zeta, and Epsilon. Of these, Delta is a variable star from the third to the fourth magnitude, with a period of five days, eight hours. In the same constellation is Mu Chefi, the reddest star visible to the unaided eye. It is of the fourth magnitude and was called by Herschel the Garnet Star. It is a striking spectacle in the binocular. Ketos, a long straggling group somewhat difficult to follow. Beta, the brightest, is of the second magnitude. The most notable star in the constellation is Omicron, known as Mira, the Wonderful Star. It is a notable variable, with a period of 331 days. At maximum, its variation may be easily followed by the unaided eye. Corona Borealis There is not the slightest difficulty in identifying this constellation. Its name, the Northern Crown, suits it exactly, and from its crown shape is easily identified. Its brightest star, Alfeca, of the second magnitude, it is a good field for the binocular. In this constellation appeared the blaze star of 1866. Corvus and Crater. These are two small, insignificant constellations seen in the south in the springtime. They present little of interest to the beginner. Cygnus. This is one of the finest constellations in the entire heavens. The galaxy is here particularly rich, and fine fields are within the reach of the binocular. Round Alpha there is a remarkable arrangement of the stars, and round Gamma there is one equally striking. Beta is a magnificent double, seen to advantage in a two-inch telescope. The component stars are yellow and blue. It is interesting to identify the faint stars. One of these, 61 Cygni, is easily visible to the unaided eye. The constellation's most striking feature is the long cross formed by the stars Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta and Epsilon. Of these, Alpha is the brightest and Beta the faintest. Draco, a long, straggling northern constellation, it does not offer many attractions to the beginner. Eridanus, another straggling group seen in the south in winter, its brightest star is invisible in the northern hemisphere. Gemini, this is a very fine group, easily identified. 
its brightest stars are Pollux of the first magnitude and Castor of the second. A little north of Eta is a star cluster just visible to the unaided eye. Zeta is a well-known variable, easily within the reach of the beginner. Hercules. The chief feature of this group is the famous star cluster. It is fairly well seen in a two-inch telescope. Hydra. Like Draco and Eridanus, this is a straggling group. In the words of Mr. Maunder, it begins close to Procyon under Cancer, and it stretches below the zodiacal constellations of Cancer, Leo, and Virgo, and the greater part of Libra. It has few bright stars, and these grouped in easily remembered figures, and the great reaches of barren sky it includes seem referred to in the name given to its brightest star, Alfard, the solitary. Leo. This is a zodiacal constellation easily identified. Its brightest stars are Regulus of the first magnitude and Denebola of the second. Its most notable feature is the well-known Regulus. In this constellation is the radiant point of the November meteors. Libra, a zodiacal constellation, but very inconspicuous. Lyra, one of the most compact and easily identified groups. Vega is the brightest star and a striking object. Beta is a well-known variable and easily followed by the unaided eye. Ophiuchus and Serpens. These two groups are so intermixed that they may be treated as one. They are among the most difficult of all the constellations in the entire heavens. Serpens present some good binocular fields. Orion. By common consent, Orion is the most magnificent of all the constellations. Betelgeuse and Regal are the two chief stars. Regal is generally the brighter, but Betelgeuse is a variable and at times surpasses Regal. The red tint of Betelgeuse is very noticeable and contrasts with the bluish-white light of Regal. The great nebula in Orion is just visible to the unaided eye. A binocular shows it and it is seen to advantage in a two-inch telescope through which it is a striking and awe-inspiring spectacle. Orion has two stars of the first magnitude, Alpha and Beta, Betelgeuse and Regal, and five of the second, Gamma, Kappa, Delta, Epsilon, and Zeta, the three latter forming the belt of Orion. Pegasus. This is a very notable constellation and a conspicuous feature of the autumn skies. The great square is formed by four stars, one of which, however, belongs to the neighboring constellation Andromeda. The square is all the more striking on account of the dearth of stars within. Perseus. To the beginner, Perseus is perhaps the most interesting constellation. The brightest star, Alpha, Mirfak, is situated in a magnificent region. Seen with the field glass, there is a curve of stars with Mirfak at the center. Seen with the telescope, the scene is even more striking. Near to the star, Chi Per Se, is a magnificent cluster which can be seen with the binocular and is a magnificent object in a two-inch telescope. Beta Per Se, or Algol, is one of the most remarkable variable stars in the sky. All the variations are within reach of the unaided eye. Pisces. This is a constellation of faint stars, of little interest to the beginner. Piscis Australis. This constellation may just be glimpsed on a clear autumn night when the brightest star, Formahout, of the first magnitude is to be seen glimmering on the horizon. Sagittarius. A star group deeply immersed in the galaxy, which well repays observation with a binocular. Taurus. This is a constellation of the utmost charm and beauty. 
In a field glass, its beauties are especially evident. The cluster of the Pleiades is particularly striking in a binocular, as is also the Hyades, the group surrounding Aldebaran, Alpha Tauri, the brilliant red star. Of these two clusters, the Pleiades is by far the finest. Six stars are to be seen by persons of average eyesight, but with a binocular many more are to be counted. Ursa Mayor, this famous constellation is known to all, at least its chief stars which form the plough. The stars Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Epsilon, Zeta, and Eta are of the second magnitude and Delta of the fourth. Zeta is a double easily seen with the unaided eye. The two stars are known as Misar and Alcor. In a small telescope it is a striking spectacle. Ursa Minor this group is notable as it contains the pole star of the second magnitude. Virgo, a conspicuous constellation visible in spring. It is shaped like the letter Y. Spica, the brightest star, is of the first magnitude. Very little can be done in the study of the planets with the unaided eye or the binocular, but the phases of Venus, the satellites of Jupiter, and the mountains of the moon are all within reach of a small telescope of one or two inches in diameter. End of section 27. Read by Sandra, Montreal, 2022.